I'm Aaron Titus. It's August 15th, 2006, and this is the Privacy Podcast. Welcome to the Privacy Podcast. I'm Aaron Titus. I'm standing here in my bathroom facing some towels because it's the quietest place in the house. And I guess it's also the most appropriate place to talk about privacy. To do a quick introduction, I've got a degree in architecture of all things, and my current career is in the construction industry. I'm also attending law school in Washington, D.C. I have a son, Christopher, who is one year old, a daughter who will arrive next month, and a very patient wife, Jennifer. I say patient because she even lets me do this podcast. I always welcome feedback and questions. Email me at privacy at aarontitus.net. That's A-A-R-O-N-T-I-T-U-S dot net. As a privacy advocate, I cringe when I get junk mail and spam. I have been known to include secret codes in my mailing address to track where mail comes from. I give out bogus email addresses whenever possible. I signed up all of my phone numbers on donotcall.gov, and it seems to be working. I'm a pain in the butt whenever somebody asks for my address, phone number, or, heaven forbid, my social security number. I actually read all 20 pages of those online privacy waiver, uh, I mean privacy policies. I am a privacy advocate, but let's get something straight. I don't think the government is out to get me. I'm just not that important. But my identity is a valuable commodity to the government, marketers, and criminals. And I am the only person on this earth who is going to stand up for my own identity. This is the first in a series examining identity security at our nation's colleges and universities. And it's for anyone who has ever attended college. Today I'll be discussing organizational risk behaviors and the next episode will address technological risk behaviors. Here's the bottom line. Since March 2005, more than 3 million identities have leaked out of university databases or university-related organizations. Most of these leaks have been caused by hackers, computer thieves, dishonest insiders, or human error. And these just aren't student IDs. I'm talking about names, birth dates, social security numbers, addresses, passwords, and even financial data. Three million in 15 months is enough to fill a 65,000 person stadium every single day. In fact, during this podcast, roughly 70 people who have been associated with a university will have their identities compromised. Heck, it happened to me. And when my undergraduate university notified me, they told me I should get a fraud alert. And I did. They didn't apologize for putting my social security number on an insecure server. They didn't explain why they still had my social security number on record, even though I haven't attended for years. And they didn't offer legal assistance if I'm ever a victim of identity theft. So I investigated my current university and other national universities to see if I or others am at similar risk. Here's what I found out. According to privacyrights.org, Boston College, Purdue, Stanford, Michigan State, Cornell, and Georgetown lost a combined 211,000 identities to hackers, again, just since March 2005. In honor of the now-famous oil spill, privacy specialists refer to this type of identity leaking as Data Valdez, 
In another Data Valdez instance, Berkeley lost 98,400 identities on a laptop. LexisNexis had more than 300,000 compromised passwords. And it seems that smaller colleges may be at even a greater risk. In all, PrivacyRights.org has documented 77 instances of university or college-related Data Valdez. Students and former students are at a greater risk than they may think. Students give universities private information about finances, your credit history, maybe your photo, medical history, your location, and your social security number. Most college staffers don't have a clue why it's used. My favorite explanation is the computer needs it. Universities and most organizations exhibit two types of behaviors that put your identity at risk. They are organizational and technological risk behaviors. They include improper use of the social security number, risk naivety, resistance to change, administrative decentralization, shadow systems, unregulated servers, and improper hard drive sanitation. Today we're going to go over the first group, organizational risk behaviors. This just in, the more places you give out your social security number, the more likely it is to be misplaced or stolen. Some colleges use your social security number as the student ID. That's bad news, because you put your ID on tests, ID cards, and other documents. And they can keep it for years after you leave. I found that out the hard way. Unfortunately, your identity is actually their property once you give it to them. All property can be bought, sold, misplaced, stolen, rented, given, or lost. And your identity is no exception. With just your name, social security number, and birth date, a thief can create a firestorm of debt, and you'll be stuck putting out the fire. Only you can prevent forest and range fires. Only you can prevent... Oh, never mind. The next organizational risk behavior is risk naivety, caused mainly by familiarity with sensitive data. Many organizations, certainly not just universities, have staff that deal exclusively with sensitive information. I have found that those staff and those organizations that deal primarily with sensitive information are often the most naive about the inherent risks. My student loans are through Citibank. I recently called Citibank to reset a password. After sitting through the queue, someone picked up and muttered their obligatory introduction monologue. Hello, thank you for calling Citibank Loans. We are happy to serve all of your student loan needs. My employee number is blah 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 blah. Please give me your social security number. I said, no. Well, I'm sorry, sir. I can't help you without your social security number. Well, I'd be happy to identify myself by any other way you need me to, but I object to using my social security number over the phone to identify myself. I'm sorry, sir. I can't help you without your social security number. After, no joke, more than seven minutes of this stonewalling, I finally asked to talk to a supervisor. Now, in all fairness, the supervisor was able to help me immediately without my social security number and apologize for the inconvenience. But I have found that organizations who are familiar with sensitive information are ironically the ones that display the most naivety about the inherent risks of sharing that information. It's the same reason that companies ship backup tapes with sensitive information via DHL, UPS, and FedEx. You'd think they'd get the hint by now. Those backup tapes are worth sometimes millions of dollars in stolen credit. If I were to ship something that valuable, I'd hire an armored car service. The next organizational risk behavior is resistance to change, and universities are certainly not unique. 
My law school recently gave my name and address to the American Bar Association. I found this out when I got marketing material from the ABA. I called the law school to find out what other organizations they share my mailing address with. Here's part of the conversation that I had with a staff member. Good morning, Records Office. Good morning. I'm looking for whoever is in charge of selling my contact information to parties outside the law school. Oh, um, are you a current student? Mm hmm Okay. Um, I know that you can contact the university registrar if you want to have your, um, if you want to place a, um, I don't know what they call it. They have a restriction um, that will, that will further enhance Perfect. the. Talking about invoking FERPA rights? I have no idea. I know you have to sign something that says that, you know, if anyone looks at your record or anything, they make a note of it or something. Let me transfer you over there. This is a perfect example of the average level of awareness about privacy issues among your fellow disgruntled student staff. As a result, mistakes happen. Two of those mistakes happened to me not too long ago. First, I got some spam from a local apartment complex. The problem was that it was on an email account I created exclusively for the law school. Second, I once called the law school about financial aid. I identified myself by my last name only. A staff member repeated back my social security number over the phone without my request. High staff turnover makes training an ongoing struggle in spite of information control policies. In addition, office cultures resist change and new policies. Accidental information leaks can and do occur, even in the most secure IT environment. Many universities are doing their best to educate staff, but it frankly is just not good enough. The next organizational risk behavior is administrative decentralization. Now, decentralization is a double-edged sword. It allows departments more academic and fiscal freedom. It also makes implementing any type of university-wide policy just about impossible. For example, to its credit, my university is undertaking a major initiative to replace student ID numbers with non-social security numbers. This is good and will make my social security number less accessible. However, it's very difficult to make that change trickle down to all of the departments. In addition, my information will be no safer than it was at my undergrad university because of some serious technological problems, which we'll cover next time. Well, that wraps up the major organizational risk behaviors. Join me next time as we wrap up this discussion and discuss technological risk behaviors. Remember that students and former students are prime targets for ID theft. University-related organizations hemorrhage about 65,000 identities every single day. The risk can continue for decades after you attend college, and though many universities spend millions on IT security, it will never be enough without changing these organizational and technical risk behaviors. Before we go, here's this episode's privacy tip. The next time someone asks for your social security number, decline and ask them if they are going to deduct social security benefits from your payments. If the answer is no, then demand to know how your social security number is going to be used. If your SSN will only be used as a unique identifier, offer to provide a different unique identifier, such as a credit card number. Now, I know a number of you are thinking, my credit card number? Are you crazy? Well, perhaps. But I'm not nearly as crazy as anyone who would actually give up their SSN. Here are three benefits to offering your credit card number as an alternative number to your SSN. 
First, it's unique. If anyone else is using your credit card number, you would know. Second, unlike your credit file, which you probably check once every three to 48 months, you have a major credit card company and your bank constantly watching your credit card activity for suspicious activity. And your credit card company will indemnify you from expenditures that you don't make. Nobody's going to indemnify you if an identity thief buys a house on your credit. Finally, it drives home the point to that company that their customers demand more responsibility with your identity. Now you shouldn't actually give out your credit card number, but the point is that it's a much better alternative to your SSN. If you have a question or comment about privacy, email me, privacy at aarontitus.net. Statistics are provided by California-based privacyrights.org. Please enjoy a little bluegrass today. It's called Liahona by Croatian artist Deo, online at podsafenetwork.com. And I can't vouch for the words, but I like the music. Baba Ganoush by Josh Woodward at www.joshwoodward.com and podsafemusicnetwork.com. And we thank Jeff Shields for Harry Potter News, available at podsafemusicnetwork.com. Sort of live and sleep-deprived from my bathroom, this is Aaron Titus.